You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Monday, June 20th, 2016, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. And Cara Santamaria. Howdy. We have a very intimate crew this week. Evan is still on vacation in Italy, and Jay has a business thing tonight. He may, may join us later in the show, maybe for science or fiction, but I wouldn't count on it. We do have a great interview coming up later in the show with Michael Marshall from the Merseyside Skeptics, uh, but we're going to do the, the bulk of the show with just the three of us, guys. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. yeah. So we got the A-team, got the A-team for this episode. I can't disagree with that. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, did I say that out loud? Sorry. <laughs> Bob, why don't you start us off with Forgotten Superheroes of Science? Sure. Uh, this week for Forgotten Superheroes of Science, I'll be talking about Mary Edwards, 1750 to 1815, she was among the very few women in the late 1700s to actually earn a living from scientific work. Edward's husband, John, had taken uh, on some work from the British Nautical Almanac for extra money for his family. His job, among 34 other all-male human computers, as you know, back, at, back in years ago, a computer was actually a person who was doing computing. Their job was to study the moon and the sun and the planets at various times of the day and note as accurately as possible their positions in the sky. Now, these nautical almanacs were created every year, and they were used for obviously, navigation at sea. And he did this from 1773 to 1784, uh, the year he died. Now, Mary Edwards then wrote to the Almanac people asking if she could continue uh, the work to help support her family. Because as it turns out, uh, after her husband's death, they lost the house that they lived in. They they lost pretty much everything. The only thing she really got or the family got was debt, this massive debt. She was in dire straits. She asked if she could uh, continue the work that he was doing. And at least according to some sources, the uh, the claim is, is that she actually did most of the calculations for her husband for all those years. It was really her that was doing so She was doing it anyway. Yeah, she was doing it anyway. And so I think it was hard to get a sense um, if they actually – if they believed her or not. I mean, remember, we're talking the late 1700s here. But I think after taking on the work, um, it became kind of obvious. She was uh, – over the years, she became known for her skill and her accuracy. And she actually took on double the work that her husband did because um, this was really her, her main job, whereas he was doing this just for extra work. And I think she actually took on so much work that it, sometimes she was doing half the almanac, almanac herself. So she's doing a ton of work. And uh, she was so good and so successful. And it was able to take on even extra work that after six or seven years, she actually paid off all of her debt. So uh, it went incredibly well for her. Um, she also – she trained her daughter as well. And together, uh, these two Ed- Edwards women performed this vital role for like 55 years. They they made these vital contributions to this almanac. So remember Mary Edwards. Mention her to your friends perhaps when discussing the obliquity of the ecliptic or perhaps ecliptic rectangular geocentric coordinates. Got that on the first try. Yes. Yeah, nice. (laughs) (laughs) Good job. All right, Kara, tell us about NASA's plans for an electric-powered plane. I'm really excited about this news item. If you've been following any science news over the last few days, you probably saw that on Friday there was a press release that that came out because NASA has decided that one of their new X planes is going to be dedicated to 
flying electric. And they actually announced this. Um, Charles Bolden, the NASA administrator, announced this during his keynote speech on Friday at um, Aviation 2016. So the X-planes are um, kind of special research planes that are assigned by the U.S. Air Force. And the first X-plane came out in 1947. It was called the X-1. It was the first airplane ever to fly faster than the speed of sound. So, of course, NASA has broken a lot of records using these X-planes. This would now be X-57. It probably wouldn't Whoa. come out for a few more years. Yeah, it's uh, they've made a lot. And they have a few other things sort of on the horizon, but specifically focusing on the X-57, which they are calling the Maxwell, which is named after James Clerk Maxwell, the Scottish physicist who did a lot of work in electromagnetism. Oh, not Maxwell Smart? No, not Maxwell Smart. <laughs> that would have been my first guess. <laughs> and loving it, Steve. That's what that's where my mind went. Also, I love that. I love that. <laughs> um, and so it's actually like a weird looking little plane. Um, it kind of looks like Very. a Cessna. This is not a plane that they have any intention of flying cross country with. This is a plane that they do think could eventually be scaled for commercial flight, but they don't see it as being long haul. They see it more as being a commuter plane. And it's weird looking. It's like a little Cessna and the wings are super skinny and really long. And the reason for that, as they say, is that the reason that wings are so broad on planes right now is that most of it's needed for lift. And so they're trying to overcome that because the truth is those massive wings aren't really necessary to stay aloft. So once you're flying, the wings are actually really bulky and kind of overkill. So they wanted to figure out how do you get this thing up in the air and then how do you keep it up in the air? And the way that they want to do that is with um, 14 different electric motors. 12 are on sort of the leading edge of the wing and those are going to help with takeoffs and landings. And then there's a larger motor on the end of the wing uh, with a propeller that's going to help with a cruise altitude. And what they think that they're going to be able to cruise at, the cruise speed would max out probably around 175 miles per hour, which is actually pretty common cruise speed for private and commuter planes. It's not the first electric plane. I mean, make no mistake about that. There's actually an electric plane that's being flown right now, but its cruise speed is something like 40 miles an hour, which is probably not really that uh, reasonable for commercial flight. Uh, the, the plane that's out right now also uses solar panels, which is pretty cool. It's not a NASA flight. It's actually called the Solar Impulse. And right now it actually is going around the world, but it cruises at around 30 to 40 miles per hour. Obviously, that is probably not... Um, that reasonable for commercial flight. But this NASA plane, which uh, was taken from an Italian P2006T, that's right there where I'm showing you that I know nothing about planes, because somebody's going to write us and say, that's a P2006T. Come on. Um, but they converted that that plane. They actually <laughs> took out the gas tanks. They took out everything that makes it a jet-powered aircraft, and they put in, uh, or they're starting now to put in the incredibly heavy batteries and all of the components necessary to convert this to an electric aircraft. The interesting thing is, you know, what we gain from this. Obviously, the most basic is that the emissions 
go way down. The cost goes way down. The payload doesn't actually go down. It goes up because these batteries are incredibly heavy and they take up a whole lot of space. So, you know, for example, 800 pounds of batteries mean that they had to take out the two rear passenger seats. They're going to have to take out the seat next to the pilot and fill it with instrumentation. So as of the first iteration of the X-57, there will only be room for a pilot and no passengers. (laughs) Just wow. really that viable. But there's no fuel. There's also but there's no, no fuel. fuel which is, and that's right. huge. And so not only are we talking about no emissions, we're talking about no sound. We're talking about, you know, nothing required in the refining process. And remember, jet fuel still has lead in it. It's incredibly dangerous. And so it's, it's just way less toxic and way less of uh, an expense to put this thing in the air. I mean, it could actually cut operational costs by 40%. And you could probably have these runways in places you couldn't have them before because of noise pollution. So that's really cool. My first thought, I hadn't read this. And when I first saw this image of and this title of this article, um, my first thought was, I mean, how I mean, I kind of thought that Electric planes really weren't a good idea because of just the, the energy density of batteries just mm-hmm. cannot, cannot do it. And so I'm wondering what the, you know, what the range is for this type of thing. And you said the top speed is what, 175, which is, which is decent, uh, for, for, for some applications, but for a commercial, I mean, could they really, I wonder if they could really ever get up to a commercial plane using this technique with using the, you know, the, the energy density of battery technology today. Well, they don't think they're ever going to be able to do a coast-to-coast flight using a plane similar to the X-57. They're saying with the design as it stands right now, they're going to be able to go 175 and they're going to be able to fly for about an hour, which actually is quite reasonable for many, many private and commuter flights. Now, that said... In the future, they hope to upgrade the 800 pounds of batteries to fuel cells. Once they can move up to fuel Uh. cells, then they're going to be able to overcome some of those issues. But I think it's a reasonable plan. You know, the same way I'm an early adopter. I'm excited to drive my electric car. I have friends. I know people who talk about it and they say, I'm just going to wait until the fuel cell. And then the fuel cell comes out and they say, I'm just going to wait until the next iteration, which is fine. But at some point, you have to just do it. You know, and then you can start iterating after that. And I think that that's what's happening now. The other cool thing is that the X-Plane program has uh, four other planes in the pipeline. This is an Obama administration initiative that he announced in February. And so uh, they're putting a lot of uh, money into this. They have four X-Plane projects in the pipeline. And during the press conference, the NASA administrator said that one of them is a supersonic airplane that won't generate supersonic booms. And it could potentially go around the world in six hours or go from Dubai to New York in a single hour. I love love X initiatives. I know. (laughs) It's so cool. In an hour? In an hour, I know. Um, I mean, you know, it's funny because you see that we sometimes do take two steps forward, three steps back. You know, we have had incredibly fast planes in the past. They just weren't always, you know, completely safe. Um, and it's hard. You have to you have to weigh those things. And that's why I think these sort of experimental plane programs are, are important because sometimes you do have to take risks in order to be able to move the entire field forward and get out of your comfort zone. But Yeah, and that's NASA's job. Yeah, that is their job. I mean, commercial air air travel is big. It's big business and a lot of people fly. So obviously you have to be concerned about keeping people safe. But the first step is to get something off the ground. It's really, I like the idea of these electric 
planes, you know, prop mm-hmm. planes. So it looks like we're like right barely at the edge of something that's usable. You know, obviously yeah. there's not a lot of room for passengers in this model, so that's not going to be very useful. So, but you could, I could say in five or 10 years, you know, when the, when battery technology iterates a little bit or mm-hmm. when uh, fuel cells become practical, you know, if they could, these could be, these could be like hydrogen fuel cells might be a perfect application for this sort of thing. The idea of having an extremely quiet plane because I've you know you, yeah. you've probably care you've flown these these small commuter planes mm-hmm. right they yeah you know yeah you book your ticket or, you know you have a connection somewhere and you realize oh crap I'm taking this tiny little commuter prop job on this one leg of the trip that I'm taking and the worst thing about it is the noise mm-hmm. I don't mind the small plane the only thing I really mind about is they're so freaking noisy so I wonder how quiet the electric you know plane would be. You know, I mean, much- they talk about it like it's the difference between driving a regular car and driving, you know, a hybrid. Like it's quiet. So probably this could fill a niche. You know, would obviously wouldn't be good for every application, but you know, it definitely could fill a niche. And if you any efficiency that we gain in terms of the price of, you know, getting from here to there, and also carbon emissions and and all of that could be huge because it, it's such a big industry. So I'm glad that you know that they're they're moving in that direction. I just hope it all. It all, all pans out. All right, guys, let's move on to the next item. So this comes up every now and then. In Massachusetts, the Senate just passed the Naturopathic Practice Act, which is a horrible piece of legislation that would give naturopaths not only licensure, but also a broad scope of practice. They could essentially function as primary care physicians. Ah! Being hmm. like the first point of contact for a sick patient. So actually, we're going to be talking to wow. Michael Marshall about the same kind of issues later in the show. But this is what what happens is you know that you know naturopaths, just like chiropractors did back in the day, and now naturopaths and also homeopaths, acupuncturists. You know, there's professions that have a vested interest in passing laws in their favor, and it's not just getting licensure. It's in addition to getting licensure, it's also expanding their scope of practice getting the ability to prescribe, forcing insurance companies to pay uh, for their services. They're relentless at lobbying the government. You know, and in the the U.S., that means all 50 states, you know, to, to get licensure and then to expand their scope of practice and to force coverage. And we often will fight these efforts. Like we've, we've fought against Massachusetts licensing naturopaths many, like every year it comes up. Um, this is something that, you know, it's a battle we fought a dozen times, but we could win a dozen times and we lose once and then it's, then it's over, which is crazy. So, you know, once these things get in, it's a lot harder to get rid of them than to prevent them from getting passed in the first place. And then, uh, so they, so because of that, you know, the system is rigged so that it, the, it just ratchets its way up. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're, we're losing ground, you know, one bit at a time and all we're doing is slowing down the advance. There's, we don't really have a way of reversing it or permanently stopping it, which is something we need to think about. Like, I don't know how we could there, – there just isn't a mechanism like to keep this from happening. We just have to fight each battle as it comes up and try to slow it down as much as possible, maybe to give us enough time to educate the public. But, you know, that's, an up, that's a massively uphill battle. Um, so very sure, quickly right. for background, naturopaths – you know, it's hard to, to, to put this gently. They're just, the whole profession is quackery. That's the, that's the bottom line. That they're based, you know, on this loose idea on the, the appeal to nature fallacy that they practice natural medicine and, you know, they include nutrition and lifestyle things. But 
In practice, what they do is just an eclectic blend of every medical pseudoscience and quackery you can imagine. There really isn't any one cohesive philosophy there. It's just anything that's not science-based, basically. A lot of what they do is homeopathy. You know, obviously, a lot of their training is homeopathy. A lot of their practice is homeopathy. That right there says, you know, that they're pseudoscientific, but also acupuncture. A lot of nutritional pseudoscience. I mean, they'll give like supplements for everything, a lot of herbalism, and then some of their own special nonsense, like their water cures, you know, that are just crazy nonsense. Uh, it's, you know, as a physician, I could tell you, cause in, in, there are lots of naturopaths in Connecticut. So I have tons of patients who will say, oh yeah, and I saw a naturopath for this problem and they did X. And X is always the craziest shit you could possibly imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I seriously. Could, I could imagine some crazy shit. <laughs> no, it's, it's always like, oh my God. I don't even know what to say to the patient because, like, it's like if I even start to talk about it, it, it's just it'd be very hard, you know, because it would be embarrassing, and yeah. So I just have to very, I have to be very careful about how I approach that. But like I had uh, my favorite story. It's not my. It's not a. It's not a happy story. It's a very sad story. But it's a, I shouldn't say favorite. It's just a very emblematic. I had a patient who was diagnosed with Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I diagnosed him with Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is the human version of mad cow disease. Uh, but prior to seeing me, he saw a naturopath, and the naturopath was treating him for months during which time he failed to make the proper diagnosis. He had no idea what the guy had. He diagnosed him with magnetic hypersensitivity sure. and, and then allergies to every kind of food you could imagine. So he systematically eliminated foods from this guy's diet. By the time the guy came to see me, he was on about 60 supplements and he oh was God. thin as a rail. He had wasted away to nothing. And he actually died about a week after I diagnosed him. Oh, that's so sad. Yeah. So first of all, the guy should have had the diagnosis three months earlier and could have planned, you know, the the end of his life. He wasted all – he wasted the last three months of his life chasing this nonsense. And spending money. And spending a ton of money. And I'm sure that his profound malnutrition hastened his death. That is the standard in in the naturopathic profession. That's what they do is just utter nonsense. There is, in fact, no science-based standard of care. That's the problem. They they are not physicians. They do not deserve to be healthcare providers. They are basically just quacks. You know that sounds harsh, but I wouldn't say that. You know I'm very you know even keeled. I would not say something like that if I didn't think it was absolutely justified. But that doesn't mean there isn't a random naturopath out there somewhere who's like trying to practice whatever science based nutrition or whatever they're doing. But I defy you to find one. You know they're training is inherently pseudoscientific. On science-based medicine, we've been printing a series of articles by Britt Hermes, who is trained as a homeo- as a naturopath. She went through naturopathic education thinking it was natural medicine. And then but by the time she finished, she realized that she had been swindled, that she had been taught a complete body of nonsense, that she wasn't even really trained. So she does an expose on naturopathic education was like, you don't get to actually see patients and they don't know how to diagnose stuff. I mean, they just don't know what they're doing. Uh, not only are their treatments pseudoscience, they, they really don't have the training to even understand medicine and, and recognize and diagnose diseases, et cetera. So even when they say, oh, if we you know encounter a patient that's beyond our ability to diagnose and treat, we'll refer them to a physician. That's bullshit. They don't do that because they don't, they don't know how to recognize 
when they don't know how to recognize a diagnosis or when they don't know how to treat somebody. Yeah, like this guy was, you know, treating a patient with a very serious neurological condition for weeks and had no idea that he was utterly mismanaging Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. He probably didn't even know what it was. Can he diagnose him with this fake stuff like magnetic hypersensitivity or whatever? So this is happening. This is happening in the United States is that naturopaths are relentlessly state by state lobbying to get you know, licensure and then to get the, to be able to practice like primary care doctors to get insurance to cover them, to prescribe drugs, which goes against their philosophy, which is kind of weird. But again, they just want to be an alternate physician who doesn't have to actually, you know, spend time learning science or, you know, they basically just want to be able to do whatever they want. You know, that's really what they want is they want, they want the ability to just do whatever they want without being held to any kind of standard. Because that's like work and stuff. You know, you have to actually study and keep up on work and stuff. What's the education program like? Or is it like really widely vary? No, it's not that many schools, but I mean, it's, it's just horrible. Like they spend most of their time learning homeopathy and mm-hmm. herbalism and acupuncture. And they p- learn some actual real stuff in there too, probably. But who cares? Because it's not science-based. There's no standard of care. So it doesn't matter what they spend their time doing. And then again, according to Brett Hermes, they like during their clinical rotations, they don't really get to to see sick patients or treat patients or get supervised. So they they come out of their four years of training. Four years of nonsense. So four years of nonsense. Yeah. First of all, they really don't have the experience to start practicing, but they do. They just get thrown in. They hang up a shingle and they start seeing patients really without the experience. Uh, by con- by comparison, for example. The, like, the minimal amount of training you need to get actually licensed as a family practitioner in medicine, you need 15,000 plus more hours of clinical training than what your average Whoa. naturopath gets. It's a dramatic <laughs> difference. You could it, say that. Yeah. They're just not prepared to start seeing patients. Jeez. But and the other thing that's horrible is that once they're licensed, they basically regulate themselves. The states don't regulate them. There's no oversight. There's no external validity. It's just, okay, the naturopaths, then they decide what their own standard is. They get to regulate themselves, which is what they want. You know, which is, that's fine for a profession that has some kind of external validity, right? That mm-hmm. holds itself to a demonstrable standard of some sort. But they don't. So it just becomes meaningless. And, and of course, the public interprets it as an imprimatur of legitimacy. Yes, yes. Like, ugh, I'm in a bad mood now. Right, you're, <laughs> right, you're a congressman. We do yes. have to mobilize. We have to mobilize. Yes. We, we're talking about this. We do have, a, you know, on the Society for Science-Based Medicine, a page to sort of aggregate um, legislative battles, you know, on alternative medicine. But we need a, a more automatic way of really mobilizing the skeptical community to just make phone calls and send emails, you know. That, that makes a huge difference, and we need a to do a lot more difference. of that. A huge difference. Yeah, never underestimate the power of just picking up the phone. Yeah. Because I don't, I don't know if everybody watched uh, Last Week Tonight this week, John Oliver's show, and he talks a little bit about the gun lobby and about um, the NRA. Yeah. And, of course, we talked about that on the show l- last week. And just how much we don't think about it, but these organized groups who literally will just call and call and call their representatives over, that's how they actually get these things passed. We like to say, oh, but they just have so much money. Money is power. I'm, I'm, you know, powerless against it. But the truth of the matter is they utilize that money to organize people to actually make phone calls and to write letters. And when your congressperson has a stack of letters on their desk, uh, on their desk, or their phone is ringing off the hook by their own constituents saying they don't want this, they won't have the political will anymore to push it through. 
because they need their constituents to vote for them. All right, Bob. Yes, sir. You talked a little bit last week about black holes and dark matter and promised to give us the whole story this week. Yeah, this uh, just really grabbed my attention. Uh, Astronomers are exploring the fascinating possibility that elusive dark matter may in fact be made of primordial black holes and the recent detection of gravitational waves may be involved in this. But little background we covered uh, with great fanfare, this the LIGO detection that happened September 14th, 2015. Uh, early in 2016, it came out that they, for the first time ever, detected gravitational waves and also uh, direct evidence of, of black hole collisions. So that was uh, really huge. It was the we we're watching the birth of an entire new uh, field of astronomy, which doesn't happen very often. This discovery, as incredible as, as it is, just by itself, uh, may even be more awesomer than we than we think it, it was, because it may actually point to what the hell dark matter is. Which is, uh, one of the, one of the biggest mysteries, um, in, in astronomy. It's, I mean, what is this stuff? We, we discovered it many, many years ago. We have still have no idea exactly what this is. We're talking something that makes up like what, 26% of the entire universe, as far as we know. And we're still not sure, uh, people, you know, the, the two big candidates for dark matter, um, have been wimps and machos. Um, yes, these are um, acronyms, not initialisms. These are acronyms. A WIMP is a weakly uh, interacting massive particle, which I think is the most favored theory for what dark matter is these days. This is just, just as I said, it's a it's a exotic particle that has mass that we just have, n- have not detected. The other potential possibility for dark matter is what's called machos, massive compact halo objects, something like black holes or neutron stars or brown dwarfs or something like that. So this, if this this theory or hypothesis is correct that we may tip the scales from wimps to machos. Now, primordial black, black holes, that's something that you may think you know what it is, but uh, maybe not. Um, they are theoretical. We have never detected, uh, we think, any primordial black holes. Um, the idea is that these types of black holes formed soon after, very soon after uh, the Big Bang, and they're not they're not caused by stars. Um, it's not a collapsing star from a supernova. They think it's possibly uh, caused by large chunks of gas, essentially, collapsing in on itself um, uh, in the early universe. Um, so these are not stellar black holes. They're not supermassive black holes. They're kind of in between. Their masses could be somewhere between, I don't know, t- I think 20 to 40 solar masses. Um, we're not sure. Um, so they're kind of like in the gray zone. So what's the connection then between the black holes and dark and dark matter and, and gravitational uh, waves? Uh, so what's going on? So the bottom line is that the the black holes that collided that ushered in the age of gravitational wave astronomy, we think they could have been these primordial black holes. And if they exist in uh, in the numbers that they p- could potentially exist in, that would be a lot of evidence. Uh, supporting evidence that, th- that these are, this could be what dark matter is. So the reason why they made all these connections is because, um, a few years ago, astronomers discovered an excess of cosmic infrared and X-ray background radiation that they could not explain. So this isn't, you know, this is uh, cosmic infrared and X-rays, not the cosmic microwave background radiation, which we've mentioned about a million times on the show. So the question is, where did this excess, very old, redshifted and diffuse light come from? So the idea is that if the the earliest stars that formed uh, could explain uh, some of this infrared, but not all of it. But the real clincher uh, when talking about it from this angle was that if some of this gas that went into creating uh, these very earliest stars also were sucked in by these by these 
primordial black holes, and not just the black holes, we're talking about lots of black holes creating what was called these halo objects. And these halo objects then would uh, would collect the regular matter that created stars and galaxies and clusters and everything. If, if this gas that created the first stars also went in, you know, where, where it sucked into these primordial black holes, then that could heat up enough to create X-rays, this excess X-ray that I mentioned. And that's the, the cosmic X-ray background radiation. And that was a real clincher. So the fact that primordial black holes could explain both the excess infrared cosmic infrared radiation and the x-ray radiation that they can't account for it kind of that kind of bound the, the this theory and it just everything made a lot more sense uh when when you factor all these together so that was one kind of line of evidence that primordial black holes could explain this this excess infrared and x-ray radiation that we're seeing uh, from deep in space. The other way uh, that this is support, that this this theory is supported is the black hole size, as I mentioned. The LIGO, you know, LIGO detected black holes that were 36 and 29 solar masses, which is kind of right around the sweet spot of what we th- potentially think that primordial black holes could be. And then there was another detection um, of, uh, you may not even have heard this, but there was another detection of gravitational waves from, from two other colliding black holes. Um, they weren't as massive as those, but they could, they could kind of be considered w- within the range of, of primordial black holes as well. But so keep in mind that this is in the very early stages um, of, of this, of developing a, the, the development of this theory or hypothesis, one of the researchers, Mark Kamienkowski, said, "We are not we are not proposing that this is dark matter. We're not going to bet the house. It's a plausibility argument. So that's where we are right now. Um, so in the future, what they're going to need to do is they're going to have to have a lot more observations of black holes to determine if they actually are uh, primordial or if they formed later in the universe's history. This is uh, it would be awesome to." If we finally knew what dark matter was, this is something that for how many, I mean, how many years has it been since, uh, since the late, late nineties, I think mid nineties, uh, since they've mm-hmm. been banding that about. So it's, and it's such a huge, huge mystery. And that dark energy is still largely an unknown thing as well. So, but it's funny because part of me would be a little, actually a little bit disappointed if it turns out to be these uh, primordial black holes because I don't know there's something, something really fascinating about the possibility of some new exotic particle out there that I, that is what comprises dark matter. But I mean, I would just be happy uh, finally resolving that mystery. And it is kind of cool to think that there's, there would be so many of these primordial black holes out there that it actually is what we've been c- calling dark matter. Yeah, I think it, the whole thing is so interesting because, I mean, dark matter is just that. You know, astronomers discovered that there was more gravity in galaxies than we could account for by the stuff that we could see, the lighted stuff. So there must be some dark stuff, things that stuff that we can't see. That was it. It wasn't necessarily the term dark matter wasn't invented to re, to refer specifically to a new kind of matter. Mm-hmm. Just to refer to stuff we can't see. That's it. Dark, yeah. It's, yeah, it's just it's, dark. That's it. But it's, it could be ordinary matter that's not lit. That was always one of the you know the the, the strong possibilities. I think that was the initial assumption that sure. it was just ordinary matter. But then when we couldn't find it, some people started to think, well, maybe it's a new kind of matter. You know, it's not. It isn't ordinary matter. But this now, as you say, Bob, brings it back into, yeah, maybe there's just a lot of black holes out there that we didn't know about. But now, now we can detect them because of. You know, a gravitational astronomy. By the way, Bob, is it gravity wave or gravitational wave? Gravitational, gravitational and, waves. And what's a gravity wave? Gravity waves happen in the ocean and like in the clouds. 
Gravity waves are physical perturbations driven by the restoring forces of gravity in a planetary environment. But like through a fluid medium, so like air or water. So you can right. actually see them and measure them at not yes. like not a gravitational perturbation of space time. Got it. Gravity wave is through a me- fluid medium. Gravitational yeah. wave through space is a yeah. quantum effect through space time. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so gravitational waves are ripples in space time, whereas gravity waves are perturbations through a, like a, a physical or like a liquid medium like on a, on a planet in an environment like a got planet. It. Got so, it. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah like you can actually measure. We, we've been able to measure gravity waves for many, many years. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right, right. Yeah. But so um, the cool thing is now that we've now we we had a second detection already we have already made a second mm-hmm. de- detection a few months ago earlier this year of a, of a second of two other yeah. black holes merging two already and because I think so they may um, be crazy common they yeah if they are crazy common then that would be a really solid evidence and I think you know once they really start looking and they I, I think they're going to actually kind of loft a, a LIGO type uh, probe or or satellite. Uh, out, you know, into orbit so that it's not disturbed by all the, you know, all the crazy stuff they had to do for LIGO to, to minimize all, even, even dogs walking outside they had to account for in their, in their, in their measurements. If they could loft that into space, they would get even more sensitivity and then we could potentially see a flood. And if they even, even if they make the ground based ones even a little bit more sensitive, then uh, we could still see a, a flood right. of these, of these things. So that would be fascinating. I'm always amazed when I read cosmology and I read, um, sort of astrophysics. The way that science is done is in many ways different from the way that we have to do science in a lot of other fields now. But I think we used to be able to do science in that way, even in biology and, and kind of more macro chemistry, where there's a summation of something, you know, a summation of energy, a summation of gravity, whatever the case may be that we can physically measure. And then we can't and then something doesn't account for it. Like we have excess. And we go, where does this excess come from? How do I make my equations balance out? Why is the math mm-hmm. wrong? And in digging through trying to correct the math, we actually start to discover fundamental fundamental principles. You know, we, we start to discover actual happenstance in the universe, which I just think it's so much harder to do that now Hello, in that word. biology, for example. It's so much harder to do that now in macro chemistry and geology to, to be able to just look at the, the overall math and try and speculate or um, hypothesize as to what's missing. It's such a cool detective story that always yeah. fascinates me. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, The Great Courses Plus. Guys, I'm listening to The Science of Information from Language to Black Holes by Benjamin Schumacher. Have you listened to this? It's fascinating. This information theory is just so key, and you'll really come to appreciate that if you listen to this. It covers the concepts and history of information theory and how it's impacted technology, science, and even our understanding of reality. Exceptional listen. It's one of those topics that is like unifying of different fields of science. You know, it applies to pretty much anything. And it can actually change the way you think about stuff. Yeah, and it's only one of over 7,000 video lectures that are taught by award-winning professors at The Great Courses Plus. So there are so many options out there, whatever you're interested in, or maybe you can focus on something that you never thought you'd be interested in, something that you have no background in. You can learn something new every day with The Great Courses Plus. You can do it anywhere, on your TV, your laptop, 
your tablet, your smartphone. And as an SGU listener, you'll immediately get one month free to start watching as many lectures as you want. So to start your free trial today, sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash skeptics. That's thegreatcoursesplus, P-L-U-S, dot com slash skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to our show. All right, Kara, what's the word this week? The word this week is a fun one to say, and it was recommended by Blythe Nilsson from British Columbia. He says one of his favorite words is crepuscular. I love that <laughs> word, too. <Yeah. laughs> it doesn't so, sound like what it is, though, but it is a It cool does word. not. It sounds like some sort of, like, disease state or, you yeah. know, something you pop. Something sounds that like a kind of rash. You yes. A, you have a very crepuscular rash. Yes, I, yes. I, like I, something with boils. I yeah. think it sounds exactly... <laughs> really? Yes. <laughs> I, wonder, I don't know. I wonder if you came across the term crepuscular early on when you were reading. Because I think sometimes the earlier that words make their way into your consciousness, the more they truly carry that weight. So if you don't know what crepuscular means, because you've always thought it was some sort of hideous rash, um, its definition is straightforward of relating to or resembling twilight. And specifically, we use it more in science as referring to animals or insects, organisms that are active during twilight or things that occur during twilight. So even though you can use it in general to like in a literary sense to relate to twilight, if you're writing poetry, you know, there could be a crepuscular, you know, feeling in the air. We saw a resurgence of this use more recently in the scientific literature. The figurative use did start way back in the 1660s. And around 1755, we started to see the use in the scientific literature. And it comes from basically an early Roman term that was used for twilight. It was craper, which meant dusky. And so crepusculum was the way that Roman writers would refer to the half-light of the evening. So they were talking about right after the sun sets, it's the crepusculum portion of the evening. And then when right before the morning comes up, which is also a type of twilight, that was the diliculum portion of the evening. And diliculum completely died off. Like we don't use that at all. But crepuscular did make its way back into the lexicon. So certain things that are crepuscular would include fireflies, which are actually beetles, not flies, moths, cats, and even rabbits. Um, and also remember that there are some terms of crepuscular that don't relate to animals. For example, crepuscular rays are, you know how you look up and I always refer to it as a Jesus postcard. I'm like, wow, the sky really looks yes. like a Jesus postcard, but the sun is setting. It's twilight. And basically the rays of the sun stand out against the unlit air around them. Those are referred to as crepuscular rays when you can really see those sun rays. It's a great word. Yeah, they, it is. And that's when I think of crepuscular, that's what I think of. That's, I, I don't think of anything else except yeah. crepuscular rays. And they, yeah, they seem to radiate from a point. And, uh, and yeah, it's just a perspective thing, like, like railroad tracks. Mm-hmm. And there's also the opposite of that is the anti-crepuscular rays where they seem to converge on a point. And that's, um, and that point is always opposite to the sun. And, uh, and yeah. that's caused by the same thing. It's a, it's a perspective thing and they're just, they're beautiful. Yeah. So, yeah. So you have, uh, nocturnal. Everyone knows that term, right? You mentioned mm-hmm. diurnal is during diurnal. the day. Mm-hmm. Crep- yeah. Crepuscular is at twilight. What's matutinal? Did you say that one? I didn't say matutinal. I didn't add matutinal. Matutinal means getting up right before dawn. Yeah, that's the other type of twilight. Yeah. And vespertine. 
Vespertine. Wow. In the, in the evening. So like right after uh, sunset. So yeah. They're, so these are just all different specialized. They mainly to refer to when animals are active. I think I'm quite crepuscular. You think so? I think so. I'm quite active. I'm, I'm, in, a, at I'm, twilight. A, I'm matutinal myself. Hmm. I'm absolutely not matutinal. I am dead asleep during that portion. No, I love waking up right before sun sunrise. That's what? like my worst it. nightmare. Oh yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> well, guys, let's go on with our interview. And for those of you who are premium members of the SGU, uh, I will be simultaneously making available the uncut version of this interview, which is over forty minutes long. So take a look for that in our premium content. Joining me now is Michael Marshall. Marsh, welcome to the Skeptic's Guide. It's a pleasure to be here. And for those of you who don't know, Michael, who actually go, you go by the name, the nickname Marsh, right? I do. Just to confuse people, I go by a, a weird little nickname. So yeah, yeah. Marsh is uh, what I'm tend to be known by. Marsh is the vice president of the Merseyside Skeptic Society. He also is a member of the Good Thinking Society and helps run the conference QED, which is Europe's premier English-speaking skeptical conference. Marsh, you're joining us tonight to talk about some of the work that you've been doing with the Good Thinking Society regarding homeopathy in the UK. So why don't you give us the background on that? Yeah, it's been uh, a fascinating couple of years, really, because um, Good Thinking Society is a charity that was set up by uh, Simon Singh, who I'm sure you've had on the show plenty of times, yes, and you know Simon sure. really well. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of in the position where I'm a full-time skeptic working for the uh, Good Thinking Society. It's, it's my full-time job. And um, the idea of Good Thinking was what happens if we've got a bit of time to uh, take a look at things with a pragmatic approach, a kind of a professional approach, really trying to figure out what's going on. And one of the things we really started to focus on first was the fact that homeopathy is uh, supplied on the National Health Service here in the UK. So actually our, our healthcare, our Medicare kind of thing is, um, is funding homeopathy. And um, what, we really did, what really shocked me when I first started looking into this is there was nobody in this country who knew how much money we were spending on homeopathy, how much of taxpayers' money was going on stuff that we all knew didn't work at all because there was nobody involved in the health service whose job it was to sign that check or to, to ask the figures. Um, so we had this kind of, um, initial starting point where we had to figure out every different, ask every different part of the country individually in these 200 and something different health boards, whether they funded homeopathy and how much, and then we had to put those figures together. And so we're in this weird position where we as a charity were the first people in the country to know actually how much money the country spends on homeopathy and, and where it's being spent. And it's between sort of four and five million is the figure we came up with, uh, when we, when we did it a year and a bit ago. Um, which is a ridiculous amount. I mean, it's, it's not a huge amount in terms of a whole country's budget for healthcare, um, which are going to run into the billions. But when you look at it in terms of, you know, nurses and recently junior doctors here in the UK were on strike because their pay was being cut, uh, that five million pounds starts to look like it's money that could be spent in better places than on sugar pills that we know don't actually do anything. Yeah. So the, to the, what we then started doing is once we knew where all the money was being spent, we started looking at, uh, which, health boards were making the decisions to fund it and whether those decisions were being made lawfully, actually following uh, the, the correct due process for spending public money. And we started, we actually brought uh, an initial, we got a, a bit of uh, legal advice from uh, some solicitors who helped us put together a case against um, Liverpool, where I live, who were spending something like £30,000 on homeopathy. They've made a decision to carry on funding it and we managed to, to challenge that decision. We've been really fighting that uh, that case and uh, advocating for uh, ending homeopathy in Liverpool for about 18 months 
And as of last week, homeopathy was dropped from Liverpool Healthcare completely. They've stopped funding it as a result of our work, which was a phenomenal win, really. It uh, was a, a really great moment for, for us as a charity and the work we've been doing, really. Yeah, that is awesome. Um, How much did they spend in legal fees defending their decision, I wonder, to spend yeah. £3,000? I'm not sure, but I mean, to be honest, it's one of the points that um, one, of the, one of the solicitors who was working with us uh, was pointing out is that we, first of all, asked the Department of Health, who's in charge of all of the country, uh, to issue guidance to say, stop funding homeopathy. Because you guys remember there was the um, big evidence check in 2010 that looked at all the evidence and said, look, we've got to stop funding this. But the, the way the government responded to that was to say, well, we don't disagree with the findings, but we're not going to tell each of these different health bodies how to do their job. They've got to do that themselves. So we said to the Department of Health, you should really issue guidance and tell them to stop because it's spending a lot of money that they don't need to spend. So part of our point was if the Department of Health had actually listened to us, then we wouldn't have had to bring this kind of legal case. They wouldn't have had to spend legal fees and then go through a long consultation. Um, it w- and this is something that's now happening all around the country in the, the various different areas that are funding homeopathy. They're now going through the same kind of review, the same kind of consultation. And uh, luckily, because we, we're aware of where it was being funded, we're aware of the decisions to fund it, we're also aware of the reviews and we can actually be part of those reviews. And that was that was really the real success in Liverpool was not only challenging their decision to get them to go to a review, but was to then actually to work with the Merseyside Skeptics, who I'm you know, also vice president of, um, to uh, mobilise sceptics in Liverpool to start being part of the consultation. Because what always happens, and I'm sure it's the same in, uh, in the US, is that when these kinds of decisions come up, the homeopaths hear all about it because it's their patients that are being denied the treatment that they think is going to work. And, you know, we, we know it doesn't really do anything, but they really do firmly believe it works. So they corral their patients to get involved, but nobody corrals sceptics to get involved. And if sceptics even hear about it, we kind of say, oh, Liverpool's going to start reviewing homeopathy. Great, they should get rid of it. And we might put a note on Twitter or put a note on Facebook. But we won't say to Liverpool, well, you should get rid of it and here's why. So one of the things we were able to do is actually write to people in the Liverpool area and even wider and say, you need to put your voice into this consultation because otherwise they're going to get hundreds of responses from people saying we need to keep homeopathy and nothing from people saying we need to get rid of it. And although this isn't going to be a vote, it's not going to be taken on purely populist uh, opinion. Um, it's going to be taken on the evidence. But if they have the evidence on one side and 200 people saying we need to keep it on the other side, it's really hard for them to make the decision to cut it. Whereas if they get 300 people saying it doesn't work and 300 people saying it does work and the evidence says it doesn't work, it's really easy for them to cut it. So that was really the the, the heart of what we did is, is this kind of first of all, this initial challenge, but then actually speaking to local sceptics and lobbying them and trying to uh, corral them and motivate them and uh, make them all enthusiastic to get uh, involved. And in the end, I think it was something like 700 responses um, uh, joined in the consultation and about 450 to 500 of them were sceptical voices saying there are better ways to spend this money. There's better things that this money can be spent on, which was really significant that we actually had more of a say. And in, I think it was 75% of uh, respondents said they wouldn't use homeopathy and 73% said it shouldn't be funded which was astonishing to us really and uh, yeah it, it really did make a huge contribution to what was a, a great victory really. I've always considered homeopathy to be the lowest hanging fruit mm. because it is 100% magic pseudoscience there is and it's and it's well studied pseudoscience we have hundreds if not thousands of studies showing that homeopathy does not work. It cannot work. It does not work. It's pure nonsense. If we can't get rid of homeopathy, then we can't get rid of anything. Mm-hmm. You know, 
So yeah. I do think we need to keep the pressure up. And I think you, know, you guys are doing a great job in the UK. I think they're doing a great job. We're doing everything we can in the US. I think we're making some strides in terms of multiple organizations now, like the evidence check out of the UK, reviewed the evidence. Basically, they concluded that homeopathy was witchcraft. And the Australian one was fantastic too. The uh, NHMRC, absolutely fantastic yeah. report. Yeah, it works for nothing. It just, it doesn't work for anything. So we you know we have the science and the evidence on our side. We have the logic on our side. It's not cost effective because it doesn't work. It's a waste of money. We have every argument on our side. It's amazing how it's so hard to make headway when everything factually and and every argument seems to be pointing in our direction. Yeah, I think that's true. Although I, I do think um, part of the, the opposition is even within the, the skeptics movement, we can uh, fall victim to saying, well, it's a placebo effect, so it can't really be that bad. Shouldn't we allow homeopathy as a placebo effect? That comes up. I do quite a, lot, a number of talks on uh, on specifically on homeopathy and the, and the work we've been doing. And that always comes up from a skeptical audience. And it always strikes me that um, the, the, the response to that that comes to mind is that um, while we know homeopathy is a placebo, not all placebos have to be homeopathy. And if we're going to give out the placebo as a, give a, a patient a placebo, and there's lots of kind of ethical questions about whether that's even a good idea. But even if we accept it as a good idea to give a patient a placebo, can we not choose a placebo that at the end of the street, the guy's going to say, we'll cure your cancer? Can we right. pick a different placebo that doesn't have two centuries uh, of baggage of, uh, you know, people saying it really does work? Um, so I think that's kind of part of it is that we need to kind of divorce this idea that uh, homeopathy being a placebo can't be harmful because we as a charity get contacted by people um, more regular than I'd like. Uh, where they say, you know, one particular case always come to mind of a, a lady who said her mum had um, breast cancer with a, a 90% uh, chance of, of uh, 10-year survival. And she was convinced to try homeopathy instead of conventional medicine. And then she was convinced to do naturopathy and this type of enema and have her mercury fillings removed and put black salve on. And the lady died within three years. And it's an utterly tragic case. That's a complete waste of a life it's such an utter tragedy that's so avoidable um and part of that that avoidability i think is that we we allow uh, some of us can allow uh, homeopathy a, a free pass because it's just a placebo and it can't harm people but when you see the harm there it's uh, it's staggering yeah i totally agree I, I that is in my experience the most common argument that comes up on the other side even from scientists even from skeptics it's like well you get a placebo effect and that's something right because it makes your people feel better but that's why i've written extensively about you know the rise and fall of placebo medicine that that's uh it's interesting that you know 20 years ago when they when the proponents of homeopathy and acupuncture and all these alternative methods were arguing which were promoting themselves, they're saying, oh, we just haven't been researched. It's not fair that people, we're not getting the research money like Big Pharma is. Just do the studies and we'll show that it works. So we did the studies. We spent billions of dollars. We researched all these things and they don't work. Now they're saying, well, okay, they're no better than placebo, but placebos work too. You know, placebos are fine. So they totally changed their argument you know, to support the thing they're going to support no matter what the evidence says. But the placebo argument just falls flat if you look at it even a little bit. As you say, once you get in their office, they'll, they'll 
tell you that it will cure your cancer. You know, mm, mm, so mm. it's bullshit. They're they're not honest. They're 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 not even being. They're not saying, "Hey, this is just a feel good placebo. Don't don't use it to treat anything real. This is just going to make your subjective symptoms feel better." They're absolutely not saying that. They're saying that this is real medicine that affects your body, and that through all their bullshit hand waving vitalism arguments, that it has a real physical effect. That's what they say. And as long as that's their that's their position. Uh, there's, it's, it's completely disingenuous to then try to dismiss all of the evidence showing that it doesn't work as, well, there's a placebo effect and that's, that's good too. Cause that contradicts everything else they say about their treatment. Well, I think that's true. And I think the, the real dangerous thing is that, um, I don't think I've ever spoken to a homeopath who I think was knowingly conning people. I think they utterly, completely believe what they're doing. And, and, you know, I, I think most homeopaths, if not all, come from a position of, compassion and, and a want to care but they've got all the wrong answers and uh the the, the really dangerous thing about that is once you've got all the wrong answers but uh, a, a cast iron certainty that you can help uh, you don't know the limitations and that's where you do lead people into all sorts of really really damaging health decisions uh, because why wouldn't you treat their cancer you've got the single alternative uh, you know just a valid alternative to conventional medicine why wouldn't you use it this is the system of medicine that's good for everything so yeah that um that certainty uh, is 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 just as dangerous, uh, or even arguably more dangerous than somebody who went in knowingly trying to con people. Sure. I, I think homeopaths are utterly certain about things. But there's also, I think, a level of hubris involved that just goes beyond the pale. Like when you think about, obviously, the vast majority of homeopaths are not licensed physicians. There may be some mm. like incredibly small percentage of like three percent, yeah, who like went through medical school and like still kind of subscribe to that. But the vast majority of homeopaths basically wanted to be doctors but didn't want to do all the work mm, mm. you know what well, I, I mean like there is that component to it well most people most at least in the u.s i'm not sure if the uk numbers most people who are prescribing homeopathy are either chiropractors or naturopaths mm-hmm. the very few are just homeopaths you know what i mean oh and i think in the uk it's mostly just homeopaths but yeah. um, interesting. the interesting thing is that the majority of homeopathic remedies that are on sale in, in the lay public are actually not lawfully able to be sold because they don't have a license. So the literally overwhelming majority of uh, homeopathic remedies um, are a bit, essentially if you uh, want to sell uh, a medicine and homeopathy would count as a medicine because it's claiming to do something to your body, uh, you have to have a, a license under the EU law. And uh, as of time of recording, the UK still falls under EU law. As of yeah. time of the, the yeah. show going out, Jeez. I don't know if that's going to be true. I'm really crossing my fingers that it's still going to hold. Um, but um, yeah, if you want to sell something, it has to be uh, covered by an EU uh, license. And there's actually not that many homeopathic remedies that have an EU license. And if you're going to sell something that doesn't have a license you have to sell some you have to be a uh, a doctor with prescribing privileges and having actually seen patients and this is one of the things that i did uh, working for good thinking is that um there's a homeopathic pharmacy based up in glasgow that supplies the homeopathic hospital in glasgow and on their website, they've got a list of just the most bonkers things you could imagine. 3,000 different homeopathic products, things like homeopathic anaconda and homeopathic rainbow and homeopathic color blue. Just the color <laughs> blue. I don't, I don't know why you'd buy the color blue by itself when you can buy the rainbow and get the color blue in it like a multivitamin. I don't know why you'd buy the individual colors. And they've got homeopathic Lourdes water. So water from the Lourdes uh, sanctuary in uh, France, which I love because the idea of that is that the Lourdes water is blessed by God to be able to cure all all illnesses. But sometimes you need something a bit stronger than blessed by God. So you dilute <laughs> it down to make it homeopathic. I don't know. Well, I also um, love that they're diluting water into water. 
which yeah. is like, I don't even understand that. It's, it's incredible. But one of the things I noticed he was selling was homeopathic owl. And uh, I phoned them up and I actually recorded this and we published it in a newspaper. Uh, the, the sort of the, the video that I made from the phone call. And I asked them, what does homeopathic owl treat? Is it for people who are allergic to owls? And they said, well, it can be, but it's mainly for people who have taken on the characteristics of an owl. And I said, mm-hmm. what does that mean? What? And they what? said, well, you know, they can't sleep well at night. And, and there was a pause. And they said, because people can take on the characteristics of animals. And I thought, hang on, are all the characteristics of an owl not being able to sleep at night? Because that's called insomnia. <laughs> We've got a word for that. And it's not becoming an owl. Um, but oh but I, I ordered that remedy. They sent me some homeopathic owl through the post. And it's unlawful. There's no license for it. And this is a pharmacy that is supplying our National Health Service. Uh, as far as we can tell from the contract we've looked at, they're making more than £100,000 of taxpayers' money. And they've got no license to be selling that over the phone. Um, so that's one of the other areas that we as Good Thinking have been looking into is uh, getting the regulators, the MHRA, who are the people who regulate unlicensed medicines, to really take a look at this. Because so many, look, the, the overwhelming majority of uh, homeopathic remedies you buy in the UK are not licensed and therefore not lawful for sale. But that, it also brings up a good point with homeopathy. One of the best weapons against it is just education because most mm. people don't know what it is. It's more ridiculous than most skeptics even know. The deeper you dive on it the more you realize how batshit crazy it is like as you say like homeopathic owl i mean you know it's just it is just rainbows it's nonsense and and their approach to the patient is real is witchcraft it is witchcraft Mm. they they consider things like do you cry when you hear piano playing and that somehow tells me something about the overall you know illness that you have and it's just ridiculous. I do want to get back to another thing that you were saying about, you were talking about placebo medicine. But the point that I think that you're making is that the process is is more important, if anything, than just this one manifestation of homeopathy. Even if homeopathy itself, because it's diluted and there's no active ingredient, is not directly harmful, the real problem is that the people selling it are not doing it right. They're not mm. doing due diligence. They're not being science-based or evidence-based or logic-based. They're practicing magic based upon their own hubris. I think that's that's right, Kara. And I've spoken to like in, in naturopaths who prescribe homeopathy, and I said, okay, well, despite all the negative evidence, why do you continue to prescribe this? And their answer is, because I've seen it work. I've seen it work, so that's good enough for me. Mm. Well, wow. that's the problem. It's powerful. Not yeah. more than the homeopathy. The fact that you think you can decide what works and what doesn't work based upon your own anecdotal observation. That's a much deeper problem than this one quack manifestation of it. And, and I try to convince, you know, communicate that to people as well. You need a science based standard of care. If you don't have that, there is no end of the mischief that you will, that you will create. Well, I mean, I think that's absolutely true. And, you, you, you know, you think of the hubris. There's a group called um, Homeopaths Without Borders. I don't know if you guys know about them. They go oh, off to no. uh, conflict zones and natural disasters. And I always point out that they're not Medsans Sans Frontier. They're Medsans Sans Medicine. Yeah. Um, but, you yeah. know, they get straight on a plane. They go to these places. And with those people, it's hard because I kind of, from from the, the one side, what they're doing is, is terrible. You know, they're turning up to disaster zones with, you know, suitcases filled with uh, sugar pills, presumably, um, that aren't going to do anything at all. And you kind of want to obviously look at that and condemn it. But from the compassionate side of the of the skepticism I bring is you kind of look at it and say, well, separate their action from their intent because their intent is I've just seen a natural disaster. 
I need to get on the first plane there to help. That's an amazing intent, but they've got all the wrong answers. And all they do is, is turn up and essentially waste people's time. And, or, you know, they really can't, uh, help people. They can't, they haven't got the, the, the training, the skills, uh, the understanding, or, you know, as you say, the science-based medicine background to actually be able to offer any real help. They're so also they're, not they're, just wasting people's time. They're undoing the work that so many legitimate physicians are doing going into conflict zones where, you know, oftentimes European white doctors aren't trusted already and trying to gain the confidence of the community. These individuals coming in and, and basically doing bullshit medicine and the people don't get better or the people could die is just going to crumble the, what little confidence is already there. It's actually quite mm. dangerous. And mm. they're not just treating symptoms. They're like treating AIDS. Mm. They think yeah. that you could treat homeopathy. You could treat AIDS with homeopathy <sighs> or use homeopathic vaccines against real illnesses. That's dangerous shit right there. Yeah, it really is. I mean, I've been sold um, homeopathic malaria vaccine, I think, four or five times in the last year. It's one of the things I do when I sort of visit new towns to give a skeptics and pub talk is try and pop by the local homeopathic pharmacy or health food shop and ask them what they can give me for malaria. And um, I, was, I was in one particular shop, um, really busy, popular high street shops, so not like have a, a little backwater place, a really kind of prominent place. And they told me that if you take a, a malaria norsword and you don't have malaria, you might start manifesting the symptoms of malaria because you'll start proving the remedy and showing that what the remedy is meant to, to cure. So she said the best thing to do might be to wait until you go away. And if you do contract something, then come back and see a homeopath. So her what? advice is go and get malaria. And if you get malaria, come back and, and a homeopath will solve it. And the thing that really gets me, obviously that's incredibly dangerous advice, possibly the worst advice you could probably get, but she'd consider herself a holistic person, a holistic uh, treatment there. But her advice is go away, either take this pill and go away or, or go away and come back and take this pill. Whereas if you see a doctor and you're worried about catching malaria, they'll say, well, here's an anti-malarial pill and here's a mosquito net and here's some mosquito repellent and here's some advice about how to cover up and not, you know, during the peak times. Right. That's real holistic advice. And it's the doctor who's giving a holistic advice. And in this case, the homeopath who's just saying this pill will, uh, is, is what will cure you. Um, but yeah, it's the worst possible advice you could give. And it's not rare that I've been given that advice. And it's, it's actually 10 years since uh, Simon, uh, head of uh, Good Thinking, was working with um, uh, Sense About Science and uh, BBC Newsnight, a real kind of uh, highbrow investigative program. And they sent a student into 10 different homeopaths to say, I'm going off to West Africa. I'm very worried about catching malaria. Can homeopathy help? And 10 out of 10 homeopaths gave them something. And here we are 10 years later, I'm going into homeopaths and they're given exactly the same stuff. There's no changes. There's no system getting better. There's no regulators kicking in to, uh, to sort of weed out errant behavior in homeopaths. As far as we can see, they're still making the same claims they were. And that to me is a sign that some, that this is not a, 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 a legitimate, respectable industry necessarily. Because if there's a doctor who's making really crazy claims, other doctors will say, this guy is saying stuff that he should not be saying. He's doing stuff he should not be doing. I don't think I've ever heard a homeopath criticize another homeopath for their, right. for their actions. Yeah. Never heard it, I don't think. All right. Well, Marsh, thank you so much for joining us. So, hey, you're doing QED in October this year. Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, just before we move on to QED, I would say that if anybody wants to check out what we're doing at the Good Thinking Society around homeopathy, they can go to goodthinkingsociety.org. Uh, and we are a charity. And if anybody wants to kick in some money to keep us going, they can go to goodthinkingsociety.org slash donate. And we do kind of survive on that kind of stuff. So if anyone thinks the work we're doing is worthwhile, uh, you can always go and support us there. Um, but yeah, so we're, so uh, I'm also doing QED in October this year. And uh, Cara, you're going to be coming along and speaking at that, aren't you? I am. I'm so excited. 
It's going to be fantastic. We've got, yeah. um, yeah, lots of, uh, lots of great speakers and hopefully there's going to be about 600 people there. And yeah, it's, uh, there's still a lot of work to do for it. And yeah, I think the I next imagine. kind of got how many more months of my, my life are going to be taken up with it. But, um, yeah, we're hugely looking forward to it. Awesome. All right, Marge. Thanks for joining us. Uh, absolute pleasure, guys. Thanks, Marge. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Movement Watches. Yeah, guys, you know, we have been working with Movement Watches lately. We've been talking a lot about them on the show. You know that we love them. We each have our own Movement Watch. We're so glad that they, you know, sent over one for each of us so that we could compare our styles. And I think probably the thing that I like the most about them, other than how cool they look, is that they're totally affordable. And because of that, I mean, starting at only $95 compared to, you know, easily $200, $300, even $400 for a similar watch at a department store, they make really great gifts. Yeah, I really love mine. I got into the habit, again, of wearing a watch every day, uh, which I like. It's very stylish, but also I'm getting spoiled. I can just glance on my wrist and see what time it is. I don't have to pull my phone out and turn it on. So now I'm totally back in the habit now of wearing a watch. I love it. And there's really no hassles, guys. Just order online with free shipping, free returns, and a 24-month warranty. That's pretty nice. Go to mvmtwatches.com slash skeptics, and they'll give you 15% off your entire purchase. That's mvmtwatches.com slash skeptics. All right, guys. Let's get back to the show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fictitious. Then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. And we have a special theme this week I picked just for the two of you. Hmm. That theme is new species discovered in 2015. Oh, crap. This is something I've done before. (laughs) Yes, you have. I try to mix up when I I spring it on you so it's not predictable. But yeah, and then there's four items. There's oh, only no. two of you, so I figured you'd have time to go through four items. Thank okay. you so much. You're well. Yeah, it's better. Get better odds. Not, yeah. Not. Oh, yeah. <laughs> better Steve. odds for me, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Here are – so three of these are actual species discovered by – named or discovered this, in 2015. One of them, there's something hinky about it. See if you can sniff it out. Here we go. Item number one, scientists have named a new species of peacock spider – Meritus jactatus, so named because it extends a semicircle of brightly colored hairs on its back during mating displays. Item number two, scientists discovered a fish, Torquagener albomaculosis, that explains a 20-year-old mystery, the origin of what was dubbed crop circles of the sea, intricate circles built by the male fish as a nest. Item number three, Limonectus larvapartus, is the only known species out of 6,455 frog species that give birth to live tadpoles. And item number four, the ninja lantern shark, Edmopterus benchley, is all black, but also glows in the dark. Kara, go first. I'm going to go through them in order. Peacock spider, jactatus, meritus jactatus. I like that. Seems reasonable. Peacock spider. It's peacocking. It's got bright hair. It's some sort of mating ritual. I like it. I like it. Um, Torquigener albomaculosis. Uh, crop circles of the sea. I kind of get it. I mean, I don't love it, but I think macula, maculosa, something. I think that has to do with spots. So it kind of makes sense. Circles, spots. 
Limnonectus larvapartis, only known species of 6,455 frog species that give birth to live tadpoles. Oh, instead of eggs, I see. Um, that would be bold. Seems not reasonable, but maybe. And the ninja lantern shark, Etmo, Epton, Etmopterus benchley. That's a weird name. It's all black, but also glows in the dark. Well, that's not that hard to do if you have bacteria, like bioluminescent bacteria in a pocket somewhere. Uh, I don't like it. Steve, I don't like it. The most obvious to me would be the frog that gives birth to live tadpoles out of over, you know, nearly 6,500 species. It seems like that is a fluke. Usually when there's something like that's a statistical error, <laughs> you know what I mean? So that one sticks out to me the most. But then I'm worried that that means it's the most obviously science and that the one that seems least obvious is probably fiction, which would be to me the peacock spider. But I'm going to go with my gut and I'm going to say... Oh, but it's named Larva Parnas. Oh, no. <laughs> larvae, larvae. Oh, gosh. I'm going to go with Torquagener albomaculosis being the fiction, because I didn't know that fish build nests. But I like the spots thing. But I'm still going to say that's a fiction. And Bob. Oh, Jesus, man. I could have problems for most of these. That's kind of the Let's idea. Let's see. The yeah, <laughs> bastard. Uh, I either want them all to seem perfectly reasonable or all to seem batshit crazy. One or the yeah. other. <laughs> yeah. So the brightly colored hairs, yeah, that doesn't sound quite right. I think male spiders do well, they, they do the little like dance. I guess the movement of, of colored hairs could be effective. Yeah, the fish thing, a fish making a nest, that's kind of odd. And uh, what kind of a nest is a, is a little circle thing in the, in the, uh, in the seafloor. Oh, damn. This, the frog one, yeah, I've got a problem with that as well. I mean, I, so I guess they live their, their, what is, what's the pre tadpole stage of life for, um, egg? Yeah, egg. Okay. So I guess the <laughs> eggs mature. Yeah, but there's also like some jelly around them too, right? Yeah. Um, nutri, nutri, but it's, but it's outside the egg, isn't it? It's like the eggs are embedded in this. Uh, that wouldn't make a lot of sense. Whatever. And then the 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 the, uh, the shark one. I mean, what's the what's the advantage for glowing in the dark for a shark? And of course, I love the name Benchley. Peter Benchley wrote Jaws, right? So, but I don't know if that makes it obviously made up by Steve or just <laughs> scientists being cool. <laughs> does not help me i was like yeah, i wish i knew that i wish i knew that but, I, but you're right i don't think it helps at all right it doesn't help and that's so <laughs> frustrating benchley i could just totally see steve just throwing that in there haha <laughs> they won't re they won't remember what benchley maybe i'll get maybe i'll get partial credit even if i don't pick it no of course i won't why would you glow why would why would a shark glow that would and ninja lantern shark oh that just seems so made up Ninja lantern shark. Shark scientists are pretty badass. But but <laughs> sharks, yeah, and sharks, they're some amazing species of sharks. There's a, what the cookie cutter shark that will latch onto subs and and like eat like eat the hull. <laughs> Kara, you picked two, huh? The crop circles. I picked the crop circles. Built by the male fish as a nest. I didn't know that fish had nests. I yeah, that's that's <laughs> killing me. It's that, that I mean, I might need to pick it just for that stupid reason alone. But then our odds are really bad. <laughs> I don't care. I don't care. I just I got to go with what you know. You just got to go with what you think is the the jankiest one. 
Uh, I mean, we're gonna blow it anyway, Kara. This four, you know, just, <laughs> know. Four, just four stupid questions pulled out of his butt that we could. I mean, all the research <laughs> I did for not yet again. Yeah, because these are 2015 right, I'm gonna go, species. I'm gonna do uh, GWC. I'm gonna go with Kara. Uh, yeah, the, the the nest fish. I mean, no. Okay, that's fiction. Better be. <laughs> okay. Uh, so let's take this in reverse order. Okay. Okay. So we'll work our way down to the one you guys chose. Uh, we'll start with number four. The ninja lantern shark at Mopterus Benchley is all black, but also glows in the dark. You guys both think this one is science, and this one is Say science. It. Yeah, Yay! right. Good. So glad I didn't pick so, it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's Scientists are awesome. Yes, Benchley. Benchley was named after the author of, of Jaws. <laughs> is it Peter? Is it Peter Benchley? Is it Peter? Um, just me. Yeah, Peter Benchley, author of Jaws. So even though he created a lot of fear about sharks, later in life he became a shark conservationist and established the annual Benchley Awards, which recognize achievements in ocean conservation. Cool. So lots of lantern sharks, as the name implies, glow in the dark. This is one is the ninja lantern shark because it's also entirely black they use they have little special organs or like pockets on their body that will glow in the dark and they use it to communicate with other sharks to attract prey ah okay. and they also okay. say for camouflage mm-hmm. you know i'm not sure how the camouflage thing yeah works. how does that um, work but i guess they're hiding with other glow-in-the-dark stuff yeah or, no, I think it's that the, it's like because most of the things that glow in the dark in the ocean are tiny, like they're food. Yeah. Right? And so it's like the anglerfish. You know how it almost looks like it's like got um bait like coming over its head, but then it goes mm-hmm. and like eats anything that goes yeah. after it. Right. That's the attracting prey part. Yeah. 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 But I guess that's that would also be camouflage, right? Because you're just hiding out. Like you have no idea it's this giant shark because all you see is this tiny right. little pocket. Yeah, right. Yeah, so pretty cool. These things live uh, off in deep waters off the Pacific coast of Central America. Hmm. Uh, it was discovered by researchers from California. Yeah, pretty cool. Okay, let's go on to number three. Limnonectes larvipartis is the only known species out of 6,455 frog species that give birth to live tadpoles. You both think this one is science. And wouldn't it have been convenient if you spoke Latin at this point? Oh, uh, no. And this one <laughs> is science. Yes, ah! it does. It is the only species that gives birth to live tadpoles. Awesome. And that was the larva, the larva thingy, like the, right? The well, larva partis, yeah. That, yeah. That's that. Now, there are other species of frogs that don't lay eggs. They give birth to live frogs, but they don't give birth to tadpoles. They give birth to t- live teeny frogs. Oh, how cute. Oh, oh, whoa. <laughs> yeah, okay. so they're already frogs, but That's they're teeny. That's a wrinkle. Yeah, so there's eggs, teeny frogs, and now one frog species that gives birth to live tadpoles. That's crazy. Wow. They said one of the researchers, the, the uh, one of these frogs, squirted out a tadpole into his hand. Ew. So it was pretty direct observational evidence. <laughs> <laughs> he must have been like, holy shit. <laughs> holy creepers. Yeah. So pretty cool. All right. There's a lot yeah, a lot of new frog species discovered in 2015. Okay. We'll go to number two. Mm. Boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, 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 <laughs> discovered a fish, Torcogener albomaculus, albomaculosis, that explains a 20-year-old mystery, the origin of what was dubbed crop circles of the sea, intricate circles built by the male fish as a nest. You guys both think this is fiction because fish oh. don't build nests. Oh, no. And this one 
is science. So was I right about the <laughs> spots? Like albomaculosis sounds like a. a I don't know. Oh. <laughs> Crap. It sounds like a bald spot. Not a bald so, spot, but like a, a white I spot. I think the fish itself has spots on it, yes. So yeah, it builds a nest to lay the eggs, and it, 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 it's like these concentric circles with ridges. It's actually very beautiful. Uh, and the, the ridges exist in order to protect the eggs from currents of water so they don't get blown away. You know, They don't get swept yeah. away by the water. So yeah, it builds a nest for the eggs. So scientists found these circles in the sand at the, on, in the sea and didn't know what made them for 20 years. They were sea crop circles. But then, um, yeah, they discovered the fish making them in the act of making the circles. So the male fish, the male fish builds the nest for the eggs. The male fish does have white spots on his back. I'm the going with spots that. On it. Yeah. I'm going with that. For sure. <laughs> Very cool. Oh, uh, man. That is really gorgeous. Oh, it's I'm a, so annoyed. Yeah, It's a pretty <laughs> fish, at, too. It's very pretty. Wow. Yeah. Look at that damn thing. Holy yeah. shit. Yeah, it's pretty, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. awesome. Imagine coming upon one of those things on scuba diving. Yeah, that would be amazing. And having no idea I mean, what it is. You would think it was man-made. You would think it was like from yeah. some sort of equipment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It's crazy. I, w- I would actually think there was an object right there, yeah. right under it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, or that an object had been set down there and like pulled oh, yeah, up yeah. straight. Yeah. Okay, which means that scientists have named a new species of peacock spider, Meritus uh. jactitus, so named because it extends a semicircle of brightly colored hairs on its back during mating displays. That is the fiction, but there are peacock it. spiders. Yeah, do you know why I'm pissed about this? Is because I tweeted about the peacock spider like last week. (laughs) (laughs) The part that's fiction is it does not extend a semicircle of brightly colored hairs like a peacock. It just just has the brightly colored hairs. It's just brightly colored. It doesn't extend (laughs) like a peacock thing of feathers. Oh, my God. You you should feel horrible, Kara. I know. They are beautiful little critters, though. I mean, they are. The, the uh, coloring is tremendous. They're adorable. The, there were two species named in 2015. They are adorable. And they move. The way they dance around is, is incredible, too. You have to see the video of them dancing around. <laughs> Just look up Peacock I'm, Spider. You'll I'm watching it right now. <laughs> so the two species that were named, one, the common name is Skeletorus, Skeletor, <laughs> and the other one is Sparkle Muffin. Yes, <laughs> I love. Oh my god, so much. that's the Jactatus one. Is Sparkle Muffin? Maratus sparkle Muffin. Skeletus is Skeletorus. <laughs> yeah. Sparkle Muffin. I was almost certain this one was the the science because not only did I know about the spider, I tweeted about it. I was thinking in my head. I remember when I tweeted that it wasn't new, but it was cool enough and visual enough that I wanted to share yeah. the images because there was a new write up about it. So I was like, maybe he's trying to get me about that, but he didn't get me. Damn Car- Carol, let me ask you a question. Yes. You like Mr. Spockle? <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. <laughs> so you like Mr. Sparkle Muffin? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, should have saw that one coming. Yeah, you should have. Oh, it's so good. They are adorable, though. You got to look at them. They're so cute. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're like, I love their little dance because they do this weird thing with their legs. It's crazy. It's crazy looking. Yeah. All right, guys. That was a that was a challenging one this yes, week. There's was. four items, Damn only it. two of you. All right. I have a I have a good quote for this week. You ready? Mm-hmm. This one comes from Christopher Hitchens. Always Ooh. always good for a skeptical quote. The yeah. essence of the independent mind lies not in what it thinks, 
but in how it thinks. Yes. So good. Yes. So basically we talk about a lot, but still it's good to – it's a great quote. Yeah. Yeah. That's from Letters to a Young Contrarian. All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining me this week. Sure, Steve. Thanks, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org, where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible.